welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Hello and welcome to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. I'm your host, Tom Masters, and our guest today is Dr. Joshua Smythe. He's a distinguished professor of biobehavioral health and medicine at Penn State University and the Hershey Medical Center. And he serves as associate director of Penn State's Social Science Research Institute. He's an internationally recognized expert on ambulatory assessment and intervention with a focus on the interplay of stress, emotion, physiology, and behavior in everyday life. Welcome. Thank you, Tom. Um, Josh, welcome back to the show. Um, I'm going to briefly reintroduce you. He is a distinguished professor of biobehavioral health and medicine at Penn State. He's done an extensive amount of work on lots of things around the human consciousness. What I'm talking to him about today is about obsessive thought patterns, ruminating thoughts, um, repressed thoughts, and he's done a lot of thoughtful research. So he's been in the research world for how long now, Josh? Well, I'm dating myself. You shouldn't ask a researcher that age, <laughs> uh, but I've been actively studying, uh, you know, these topics for about 25 years. Okay, great. And then he has an extensive CV, and um, so that's why I make the, the introduction brief because I spend the whole time just introducing him. So th- welcome back. And we left the last podcast. We we're talking about obsessive thought patterns and how they're disturbing. I shared briefly that I had a full-blown obsessive compulsive disorder for almost 15 years with the last seven years being absolutely intolerable. And OCD is manifested by repetitive intrusive thoughts that you simply cannot get rid of. And I didn't know much about these repressed thought problems. I read an essay written by Dr. Daniel Wegder, published in 1999, called The Seed of Our Undoing. And it turns out that it is the most well-meaning conscientious people that have more trouble with what we, what we call URTs, unpleasant repetitive thoughts, than people who don't worry about them so much. And my Assumptions be that people that are well-meaning interpret more thoughts as unacceptable. So anyway, either way you give these thoughts neurological energy, they tend to get stronger with time and age. I can testify to that. And what we want to talk about now is sort of the concepts, okay, we have these really unpleasant thoughts that the more we do battle with them, the worse they get. And I'm just curious in your lab, if you've seen approach, I'd like to spend the next bit of this podcast, just sort of come up possibilities of how people deal with these. So my first question is how, I'm going to give a different answer than you are, but from a researcher's standpoint, how common do you think these repetitive thoughts are that are unpleasant that reach a level that affect people's quality of life? Is this sort of rare, pretty common, the rule? What's your general flavor, flavor of how big of a problem are these repetitive thought patterns? Very interesting question. I think they are extraordinarily common episodically. So almost everybody experiences these at some point for some period of time. Right. And I think that's uh, not only normal, but almost ubiquitous. I, I think I would be shocked if there are people who have never had any experience with this. And as to whether that's maladaptive and negatively impacts life, um, probably yes for most of those people. But if it's just a few days or a few weeks, while I'm undergoing some challenging thing, I get fired from my job and I start ruminating about that, as long as that goes away when I get another job, right? We would say, 
yeah, that was unpleasant and it negatively affected my life. But uh, that's maybe a, a, a qualitatively different experience than when these repetitive, unconstructive, negative thoughts persist over very long periods of time, months, years, decades. And when they are persistently negatively affecting your life. And uh, I'm not aware of any good sort of morbidity statistics on that, you know, the epidemiology of that. I don't think that's as common, of course, uh, but I certainly don't think it's exceptionally rare. So my, uh, again, this is hard to share because I really, it was a tough humbling experience, but I remember it was in high school, senior, senior year in high school, that some of these crazy thoughts started to pop into my head. And then there's a big meta-analysis I read of a bunch of papers on the ironic effect. And the one common factor that seemed to be pretty clear is that when you're under stress, just like you pointed out, that these thought patterns get worse. We talked about on the last podcast that when you're under stress, your, immune, your whole body's fired up, including the immune system, so everything's sensitized. And then you pointed out when you're angry, you start pulling in data from all sorts of parts of your brain. So even though the situation may have nothing to do with the repetitive intrusive thoughts, they start coming in, into play when you're angry and under stress. Is that correct? That's right. Okay, so under stress, why these things get worse. And so the research shows that about 4% of people have a diagnosable OCD. And I actually challenge a little bit because I mean, how do you define that really exactly? And I don't wanna get into the part of the conversation, but what I am learning, talking to lots of colleagues right now, burnout medicine is a huge deal. Um, a lot of people are under a lot of stress with the COVID pandemic, et cetera. But also just the demands of life are sort of sentry overloaded for whatever reasons, always under a lot of um, sentry input. So it appears that I think that these thoughts become, I'll use the word disruptive. Sometimes they're destructive at a certain point when, when it develops into a full-blown OCD that they become disruptive in a lot of people. And so my personal observation has been that as people actually learn to calm down their physiology, that these thoughts diminish dramatically. And I'm just curious from your perspective, that's been my observation in my role, but I'm not a psychologist and I've certainly have not done the research you have. So I'm curious in your world, how when people are bothered by these, what's the general approach. I'm going to just ask you from your perspective, I know there's all sorts of research data saying this, this, and this, but the prognosis for OCD is pretty dismal. And so I, I think that by understanding, like you pointed out, that the mind and body are a unit, they're bi-directional, by addressing the whole unit, including the physiology and including the psychology, that it's a much more solvable problem than people think. But I also think that the problem is more universal than people are willing to talk about. Yeah, I, I think uh, you correctly noted that there are, are some challenges in the definitions. And, and you know, if we go to the, the DSM or look for some of the transdiagnostic features, you know, there's a distinction between compulsive behaviors versus compulsive thoughts. And so we could slice and dice and argue over the, the numbers and, and, and people who care deeply about that do these things. And it's, it's important to, to really try to understand. But I think the broader point you're making is that you know, these sorts of obsessive, intrusive, repetitive thoughts are in fact very common. And I, I think to me, one way to think about it, 
uh, again, very simplistic, but metaphorically perhaps helpful is uh, running. And I'm we can what? run, running, like I can run. Okay. And uh, not all of us run the same speed. You might be quite a bit faster than I am. Um, some people can run for longer than I can. Um, and so we have characteristics, but most of us can, you know, run faster than I usually walk. Uh, and I think about that as sort of, that's our resource. And that's a good thing, right? If I need to run somewhere, I can do it. And some people are going to be better at it than I am. That's just the way it is, right? And maybe right. it changes by age, as you said. Right. But for all of us, what happens when we run and run and run and run and run? Okay. Maybe it's 10 minutes for me. Maybe it's an hour for you, but we're all going to hit the wall metaphorically right. and right. we become exhausted. Okay. And we slow down and we stumble and eventually we fall down. Okay. And I think at the core, what we're talking about is the sort of cognitive affective, the, 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 the mental, emotional version of that. We might differ in how adaptive and flexible and resilient we are. And maybe you can be resilient for a little longer than I am. And maybe I'm a little bit faster than you are. But sooner or later, when these things persist, I'm just depleted. I'm overcome. And we start really breaking down. And, and why I'm, I'm bringing up this metaphor is you sort of talked about, well, what happens if I calm my physiology? Or conversely, what happens if I could get rid of the thoughts? Well, they're feeding into one another and they're both drawing on these systems, right? It's sort of, it doesn't matter why I'm running, I'm running. Right. And so anything I can do to reduce the demand on these systems, it frees resources. But also we could imagine it as either a vicious or a virtuous cycle. So if I can reduce my arousal that liberates a little bit of resources. Maybe that makes me a little bit better running. I'm gonna let this metaphor go now, uh, but you know, I'm, I'm a little bit less bothered by my thoughts. And then that means my physiology isn't quite so aroused. And all of a sudden the virtuous cycle, they feed into one another and I show some improvement. Conversely, they start uh, exacerbating one another. I, I, I am physically aroused for some other reason. I don't get enough sleep and then I have those thoughts and I'm more reactive and that drains more resources. And then I have another thought and I'm even less able to deal with it. And I get more angry at myself for losing control or having those thoughts I didn't want. And so we can really see how these factors will, will absolutely dynamically play into one another. And, you know, it's not always one driving the other to be clear, uh, but certainly they are almost always related. See what happened in my spiral downward is that I was, you know, I became a major spine surgeon at one of the, at one of the top fellowships, had a tough practice, lots of stress. And my strategy, my coping skill is bring it on, bring it on. I, you, you cannot put enough stress on my plate. And I would pride myself about how much stress I could take and still keep moving forward. So I was a master at suppressing all this stuff. But at the same time, I was suppressing, I had migraine headaches, skin rashes were popping up, my ears were ringing, my feet were burning, I had back pain, neck pain, anxiety, I had all these, I was actually sick, but I didn't recognize it. And so my physiology was really fired up, but I didn't feel anxiety. And I wasn't having intrusive thoughts because I was running so fast. And in five minutes, I was driving across the 520 bridge in Seattle, it was like the pressure cooker blew up a pot 
and I had a panic attack. I, went, I also went from no anxiety to a screaming panic attack in five minutes. And that was it. I could not put that genie back in the bottle. I, for 15 years, it just was a nightmare of panic attacks, anxiety, all these other physical symptoms. So then these thought patterns became insane, almost visual. And every year that went by, they became more and more frequent. At one point, it was like once every half an hour, then once every 15 minutes. Then it was every two or three minutes all day long. It was torturous. So I like that metaphor of the running mindset. I've used the metaphor of a hovercraft that just runs out of gas and sinks into the water. Um, so as far as coping with them or just that you just say one comment about finding ways to comment on the physiology is one strategy to slow this process down. Um, is in the, the prognosis for, I don't want to get obsessive, obsessive compulsive disorder too much because that's a pretty distinct diagnosis, pretty rough. I, I want to get more into the phase of what's maybe the more common experience for most people is, you know, not, I mean, obviously they always have occasional disruptive thoughts, but when they get to the point that they become disruptive to the day, that, that seems to be a fairly common process that a lot of people don't, don't want to talk about. So, have your clinicians looked at this process in a way or a manner that might offer some solutions to it? So a, a lot of the standard approaches, you know, psychologically um, revolve around, uh, well, historically, when we are thinking about cognitive behavioral therapy or psychotherapy in general, we're um, often trying to sort of change the way someone perceives or responds to a stimulus. And one of the challenges here uh, is those stimuli aren't always very clear. So if I have a negative interaction with my boss, it's very concrete, I know what happened and I can try to effortfully apply these skills that my therapist is teaching me. Um, but when these are sort of constant, ongoing, it's sort of, how do you do that? And so. So it's, it's a bit more of a challenge, I think, because we don't have these concrete triggers or, or, or uh, rare episodes upon which I can focus my efforts. So most of the energy from um, what I've observed is the attempt to modulate responses to them. And it, uh, it really goes back to the idea that um, these have to be unwanted and negative and unconstructive. So maybe rather than go after their frequency right away, try to make them go away because we don't even really know where they're coming from. Let's try to work with someone to not get so upset, not get so angry, to modulate the response in the moment when I have them with this idea that I want to bend the curve. I'm not going to make it go away. Uh, it's we don't really expect a sort of insight oriented outcomes. Like I have a breakthrough, I get it now. It's right. all in my head, I can just move on. Like that's not right. what we're going for. We're trying to sort of bend that curve a little bit. The interconnectedness I do think also suggests that comprehensive approaches can be valuable. So I uh, would suggest for people, you know, to um, fill their, their reservoir uh, in other ways, get good sleep, have a good diet, uh, try to, you know, 
uh, get some exercise and, and, and you know not be overly sedentary. Because again, all of these make our, our uh, emotional, psychological, as well as obviously our physical and physiological systems more robust and resilient. And that has nothing to do with these things in an, in an obvious sense. Uh, but the, you know, the system is going to be better functioning and more flexible and adaptive uh, if we can do these other things right. Or conversely, if we allow those to compound, and sleep, of course, is a very tricky one when we're talking about repetitive thinking. I mean, this right. is a classic insomnia setup, right? right. Uh, so I, I don't mean to be flippant about just sleep better. Um, there, there is a, always a bit of a risk of a tautology in the solution here. And uh, I, I sometimes have uh, ambivalent responses to people who you know, do a TED talk or, or sell a book that basically says, well, stress or these thoughts are all in your head, so just don't have them and then you'll be fine. Because of course that's true um, but if it were only so easy, you know, so the solution to not having bad thoughts is don't have bad thoughts. Great. Right. Well, you said something really critical here. This is maybe the biggest point of the conversation, which I, I love what you just said is that <clears throat> what we are basic essence of solving chronic, I'm using the word chronic disease now, because we're again, finding a common basis for both mental and physical diseases. Turns out Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, um, hypertension, obesity are all inflammatory disorders, as is anxiety, depression, bipolar, and um, um, depression. So they turn to be at the molecular level an inflammatory process. So you just mentioned diet, exercise, and sleep. And the model that we're looking at is that the way every living creature survives is you have these circumstances or your stresses. Then you have the state of your nervous system, which can be calm or hyperactive. Then you have your physiology, which, you, which can be either in fight or flight or safety, rest and digest. So for right now, if you're in sustained fight or flight, your neocortex, your thinking centers go offline. You can't even think clearly. So we're finding out that the first step is always trying to use the stimulation of the vagus nerve through breathing techniques, et cetera, to calm down the output or the physiology. And then things like diet, exercise, and sleep sort of calm down the nervous system. So it takes more stress to set off that fight or flight response. Then, the, then on the input side, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy changes the input from unpleasant thoughts to more appropriate thoughts. But also we haven't talked about this today is that a lot of our agitation comes from cognitive distortions. So, you know, recognizing those distortions is a big step and not getting stuck in that hole. So when your stress is overwhelming, your coping capacity, you go into threat physiology. But what you said today, which I, I wish I had a metaphor for this, I have to think about this, but when you're in threat physiology or agitated or angry or upset, you're pulling in data from all over the brain that's making these thoughts more prevalent. Right. And I've been talking to one of my therapists, physical therapists a long time about this, about, okay, so in my experience, when I actually process anger and actually calm myself down, the thoughts largely disappear. So what you're saying to me makes incredible sense, really a key. I just learned a lot today about this whole process. So by calming down the physiology, which again, the nervous system and the body are just simply one unit, by calming down the physiology, then you start reversing that process. So um, 
yeah, so there's coming to deal with the thoughts, the steady nervous system. And I, I love it as a psychologist, you talk about diet, sleep, and exercise, which is a surgeon I've just totally ignored. I go, what are you talking about? I have a knife in my hand. Let me let me do something, right? So um, I know we both have to go here. We we gotta write. I'm just really curious how you arrived at that perspective to comment on the physiology, because that's not the normal psychological approach. Yeah, I think I I, I have uh, accepted in, in my own perspective on my work, the sort of fundamentally integrative nature of all of these systems. You know, uh, historically, we often kept them separate. You know, the physical body, the soma was off on one side and the psyche and the mind and the spirit were off on another. And we connected them over the years and people study that, but they tend to study it in one direction and maybe not even dynamically, but sort of statically. Uh, and, and, you know, our approach has been to really study them dynamically and how do they interact over time and, and viewing it as a gestalt complex system. So the emergence of our experience, whether, you know, that sort of consciousness or, or the state of our physical health, you know, is a result of not just systems biology and not just systems cognition, uh, but really the dynamic interplay of, of those things and all the, the, the levels of a system from cells to society uh, that we navigate through. And, you know, all of our core operating blocks, right? Our core software and hardware that we're, that we're endowed um, are trying to sort of maximize survival on some level. And, you know, this um, uh, sort of what I would broadly call catastrophizing the distortions and particularly the negative distortions, you know, are because we're trying to predict future threats as well as current threats. And if I think it's going to be awful in the future, it makes perfect sense for my body to stay vigilant. And so if my body's vigilant, I might be at risk. So it makes sense to cognitively be very reactive. And right. so I really think if we can, you know, uh, take this broader, more integrative approach, uh, not load all of our efforts or evaluative judgments. You know, I still had a thought, therefore I'm a failure because I didn't perfectly control them. No, no, no. Let's just do a little better with the thoughts. Let's do a little better with the physiology. Let's try to do a little better with my self-care and that collectively that's going to, you know, uh, come back to this idea of bending the curve. That's going to sort of just start to change my own personal trajectory over time and across contexts of risk and resilience. Well, Josh, thank you very, very much. This is an incredibly valuable um, podcast. Really excited about it. And uh, I know you're busy as can be, but I get a couple more topics I really want to pull you in on in the next uh, few months. So anyway, we'll talk again. I really appreciate you taking your time. You're one of the busiest people I think I've run across in a while. So well, my anyway, pleasure. It's, yeah. it's an honor to be here and, and thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Joshua Smythe, for being on the program today and for talking about the different approaches that can be used to modulate and eventually eliminate unwanted repetitive thoughts. I'm your host, Tom Masters, reminding you to be back next week for another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. And in the meantime, be sure to visit the website at www.thedocjourney.com. Thanks for listening today and join us next week for Back in Control Radio.
Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 